Welcome to the Grace in Common podcast, an extended conversation between four friends who are all theologians from three continents, from North America, Europe, and Asia. Okay, guys, good to see you all today. Um, so this is this and welcome to our listeners. So this is the second um, episode of season one of Grace in Common. Uh, so today we're talking about misconceptions of neo-Calvinism. So in our last episode, we spoke uh, about our different journeys towards neo-Calvinism, uh, what attracted us to it as a theological tradition. Um, but we thought it'd be fun today to talk about um, how people misunderstand what we're talking about in the first place, which you know, part of the beauty of this podcast with us coming from four different countries across a bunch of different continents is that we interact with really different people in quite different settings. Um, and that will also be reflected, no doubt, in the different kinds of misconceptions of neo-Calvinism. So I would love to hear from each of you guys on uh, maybe the most common misconception that you come across. Yeah, James, thanks. I, I, um, I think growing up and growing up into the theological environment in my time in seminary and then after that, uh, doing studies with, with you guys, um, the two to me that are most common, and this may be just the American context, are associations of neo-Calvinism with transformationalism in the debate between uh, reform to kingdoms ideas in relationship to a, uh, a different type of political theology on offer. So a lot of times what you'll see is that um, especially in the American context, there's there's a big debate. There's a long-standing debate between uh, how the church ought to relate to the world, how the mission of the church ought to relate to uh, practical action outside of the institutional church, right? And really, the two options that get debated about in the U.S. are: are you a neo-Calvinist or are you Reformed Two Kingdoms within the Reformed theological circles? And the, the synonym in that debate for neo-Calvinism is Christian transformationalism. And there are a hundred different ideas that get put underneath the, the banner of Christian transformationalism. And the big problem, of, of course, is not that neo-Calvinism, uh, it's, it's not to associate neo-Calvinism with some sense of transformation. It really is the ism at the end of that line. Uh, neo-Calvinism in Kuiper and Bobbing's imagination and, and theology has has no nothing to do with transformationalism as it's often been defined. So that would be for me. That's one of the most prominent. We can I'll table it. We can come back around and talk to about it more if we want. But the other one that I think is really prominent and that all of us have been, have encountered, and one that um, James and Gray we we address subtly perhaps in the beginning of our translation of Christian worldview is an association with um, neo-Calvinism with worldviewism, right? And again, it's not, it's not that uh, worldview isn't significant for neo-Calvinist thinkers. It certainly is, of course, especially Bob and Kuyper. But um, I think a lot of people will use the term neo-Calvinism as a synonym for sort of a um, mid to late 20th century American worldviewism. And those are, are very different worldview thinking and proper neo-Calvinism, historic neo-Calvinism and worldview-ism, American worldview-ism are, are two different movements, although they're in the same genealogy, if you will. So I think those are the two uh, most prominent that, that I've come across. 
completely agree with that description there, Corey, of the two misconceptions. There's definitely the two misconceptions that I've encountered as well. And it's weird because during seminary, when Bavink was just recently translated, and now everybody's reading Bavink, and everybody thought that Bavink was a neo-Calvinist, but they've already defined neo-Calvinism beforehand as transformationalism, as also even a sort of non-theological tradition that is only focused on being active and engaged in culture. And so when they were at Bavink and they realized that he's very theological, he's standing on the tradition of the church, the reformed post-reformation tradition, but also carrying that forward, and that he's actually quite restrained with his discussions on culture. He thinks that, yes, we should witness to the new creation through our engagement with culture, but he doesn't think that we can bring about God's kingdom here now through our cultural endeavors. I've actually met folks in seminary who are like, that means Bavink isn't a neo-Calvinist. <laughs> Uh, which yes. is really funny. Instead of instead of allowing Bobbing's primary sources to challenge our definition and our preconceptions of neo-Calvinism, they actually thought, "Here's my definition of neo-Calvinism. Bobbing doesn't fit that. That means by definition, Bobbing is an exception. He's actually not a neo-Calvinist." And so that's a weird thing. So so it's almost like this definition is kind of hard baked, and instead of allowing the sources to to modify it, we we still kind of hold on to it, and it's kind of an odd thing. That's fascinating how the, the, the way uh, New Calvinism has developed in the United States uh, a lot later than it has in the Netherlands, but still, still it's very similar. Um, I maybe thought beforehand when we would start this discussion that I would have a very different answer from you guys to this question, but it, it isn't actually a, a very different answer because um, the way I would say it, but I think it comes down to the same. We, we don't have the two kingdoms discussion here as much. It's really an American I did better only learn from it when I, uh, when I when I came to the United States and talked to American theologians. Um, but here it has neo-Calvinism really has a strong name for being not spiritual. Um, so just like a kind of a cold, outside, activistic, maybe not transformationalist, but uh, but really an emphasis on 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 what you have to do on outward things and and lacking an inward spiritual heart. Um, so I think that that's also explicable uh, in the in the history of the church, um, when the more bevindelike people who are more like mystical, or I know that that's that's a good word, more more um, uh, more spiritual in some ways, uh, they 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 didn't follow Kuiper when he um, when 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 they merged uh, the well, it's it's a lesson in church's history, but when when it was a merger of uh, of, of of succeeded churches. Um, so, but it's still a very similar way of viewing it, I think, and and maybe it's also because, um, well, what you just said about Bavink and Gray is that, I mean, here here obviously Bavink and Kuiper have always been both been accessible uh, to people, but still people see Neo Calvinism as Kuiper. Um, Kuiper is well known. Kuiper was a prime minister. Um, Kuiper irritated a lot of people as a prime minister, um, um, for for good reasons also. Uh, but then Bavink got forgotten. So I think in, even even in, if both were accessible, Bavink was just a lot milder, um, and also I think undervalued for a long time. Um, and there, Kuiper get, got the chance to to put his mark on what New Calvinism means, then often in in, in a negative way. Well, wow, thanks. That's really well interesting to hear. I mean, my experience compared to all three of you is is different still. Uh, similarly to Marinus, I mean, the two kingdoms discussion, it doesn't exist in Scotland. Uh, in Scotland, it strikes people as, if they've heard about it at all, as, as a very American debate that's explicable 
in terms of, uh, I guess, intra-American theological cultural issues. Um, and I mean, I, when I first learned about it, it was through a friend who'd moved from Scotland to the States and who was telling me about what this debate is, is on and how he had to work out which side to take, not having been um, exposed to it really. And it, it just, it's not, a, it's not a factor in Scotland. And we have our own kind of, at least in the, in the Presbyterian tradition, we, we have our own kind of distinct way of thinking about church in relation to culture. Um, but in terms of neo-Calvinism, so the, the two kingdoms thing isn't really an issue here. Um, the issue that I come across most often, weirdly, is, is what's well, a confusion between neo-Calvinism and new Calvinism. So when I tell people, hey, I work at Edinburgh Uni, what do you work on? Oh, I, I mostly write about neo-Calvinism. And occasionally people say things like, oh, that's odd. So you, you write about Mark Driscoll um, or, you know, you work on John Piper. And that's, I didn't know there were people who did that. And I have to tell them, no, I, I, I don't write about Mark Driscoll or John Piper. That's new Calvinism. I write about a bunch of Dutch guys who died a hundred years ago. And uh, it's a, and a completely different set of books and historical period and all that kind of stuff. But that confusion is a common one. And I think, uh, and I say that anecdotally, but I think it, it's just, it's common out there. So there, there was an article in Time Magazine, maybe a decade or so ago that was on, was it like the, the 50 ideas that are changing the world, something like that. And it identified um, new Calvinism or Calvinism was one of the ideas that's changing the world. And that article used new Calvinism and neo-Calvinism interchangeably. And that attracted so much attention as an article from you know anyone who's kind of reformed was rejoicing that, hey, we're finally in the spotlight and our ideas are finally changing the world. Even Time magazine says so. But so it got a lot of coverage, but then it also popularized a kind of imprecision and a fluidity between these two terms that's been unhelpful if you work on neo-Calvinism. So it's different to new Calvinism, which again is, is an American um, movement um, within American evangelicalism that's not the same at all. So that's a common one, but also um, I find misconceptions um, where people in, they think that they've invented the term neo-Calvinism, not knowing that it is a thing at all. And it's a useful handle in their minds to kind of pin the tail on the donkey of all the things that they don't like about um, reformed Protestantism. Uh, so if, if you do a search on Twitter for neo-Calvinism, I think most of what, you, what you'll find will be stuff that has no connection at all to Bavink or Kuiper or the Dutch reformed tradition. Um, it's just... Um, yeah, and a kind of projection of all kinds of things that people don't like. Um, but it's, yeah, it's in the, in the minds of people who use it. There are a lot of the time a, a term that they think they're, that they're inventing. So, um, so I come across those kinds of things. Um, but you also come across the same thing in some, in a Scottish context and some scholarship as well, um, where people will write about like Calvinists at various point points of Scottish history and um, if they're doing something that seems different to what Calvinists did before you talk about them as neo-Calvinists even though they lived a hundred years before Bavink and Kuiper and never went to the Netherlands and, and again it has no direct connection so I come across lots of those kinds of um, misconceptions another misconception though that's a bit more substantial um, and that would be really great to discuss and that Marinus touched on it there moments ago as well is whether Neo-Calvinism gets misunderstood or misconstrued as Kuyperianism. 
Yeah, and now this gets much more technical and, and a bit difficult to parse out the differences between the two. I think, Marina, you, you were talking about how Bavink can easily be subsumed and flattened out, and his differences to Kuiper can be, um, you know, just imagined a way of if the 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 ship flies under a Kuiperian flag. Um, does it make a difference if the ship is flying under a neo-Calvinist flag, for example? So, how do you 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 three understand the difference between? Kyperian and neo-Calvinists. Um, I think we, we would all call ourselves, in one way or another, neo-Calvinists. Uh, we're all profoundly influenced by it. Would, would any of you call yourselves Kyperians? I think that's a great question, James. And one of the things that entered into my mind when we're talking about neo-Calvinism and Kyperianism is a discussion between Carl Truman and Robert Kolb in their book between Wittenberg and Geneva. And they're really just comparing the Lutheran tradition on the one hand and the Reformation tradition on the other. And one of the things that came out of that book is that um, in Lutheranism, Luther's personality is really stamping the tradition, right? Um, it's, it's really rooted in his work and the sort of existential angst of Luther's personality really did shape the Lutheran tradition. Whereas what Truman brought out is that the Reformation is, is essentially a conciliar sort of tradition. It's all about, you know, the, the diversity of the Reformed faith in the different nations and there's reformations, not just a single reformation across the continent and, and across um, the United Kingdom. And he, he's talking about how in the reformation, there is a conciliar project. They're writing creeds and confessions, sorry, confessions of the faith that were a, a corporate sort of movement. And and not there's no one single personality that dominated the reform, reform tradition. And I think this is how we should think about neo-Calvinism as well. Yes, Kuiper was very much an influential figure at the genesis of neo-Calvinism. There's just too much of a diversity of the neo-Calvinist faith. And, and Boving in his future of Calvinism article, which you talked about, James, in the first episode, talked about how Calvinism and neo-Calvinism particularly is a truly Catholic faith. It, it understands that, that Christianity could be pluriform. And so it recognizes that Christianity is not tethered to any single individual personality or nation or even a particular time and place, right? So I think we need to, to keep in mind that neo-Calvinism is a very diverse theological tradition. It does have some unifying features like the desire for holism, a desire to go against dualism of nature and grace, a desire to want to bring forth a reformed tradition to the modern age and, and so on. But there's, there's also a diversity within it that there is actually some differences within the neo-Calvinist movement itself, right? There's Kuiper and Bavink on the one hand of the Genesis, but then there's also figures like Herman Doevert. And in some other ways in North America, there's figures like Alvin Plantinga, who drew from the Kuiperian faith, Kuiperian tradition, but also at the same time, isn't fully reformed in other aspects, especially with regard to the doctrine of God and, and theological anthropology. And then you also have figures like Klaus Schilder, who had some issues with general revelation and common grace, which is really, really important for someone like Kuiper. Um, and there's so many permutations that we have to talk about in terms of motifs, even with a sort of diversity of applications. Yeah, I think it's good to say something about uh, a little bit more about Klaus Schilder. You, you just mentioned him, Gray, um, both as an example of um, of the diversity of neo-Calvinism as it as it developed um, quickly after uh, after Bavik and Kuiper passed away, um, but maybe also also an example of, of a created misconception because Schilder was also responsible for creating a huge misconception of neo-Calvinism in the Dutch context uh, and, and also a bit beyond that. Um, so Schilder was a second generation neo-Calvinist who, who was born in 1890. So um, like 
one or two generations after Bavik and Kuiper and worked within that, their framework was really the Bavik in, in within their churches and tradition. Um, but he started, I mean, it developed, but gradually he started to engage with all, what we now also consider like the core theological concepts of neo-Calvinism that we discussed last time, um, notably common grace. Um, um, common grace, well, we, we would consider as a central, uh, a central aspect of neo-Calvinism, but Schilder criticized common grace and even ended up completely rejecting it. Um, well, I, th I think we can still safely say that Schilder is really in the neo-Calvinist tradition and is a neo-Calvinist because of the uh, lots of sensibilities. And that's also a word we used last time. I think it's, it's, it's a good word to, to stick to when we try to define what neo-Calvinism is. Um, yeah, but even in attacking something also like, like common grace, but also pluriformity, for example, which is also a, a, a key element, was also uh, criticized by Schilder. I mean, can, at a later point, we can maybe dig more into how and why he criticized this exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess this also kind of uh, tables the question, what exactly is uh, a conception of neo-Calvinism if you talk about misconceptions? I mean, what, what, what is it exactly are we talking about? But can someone like Schilder, who is in this tradition clearly and, and, and sees himself as a student of Kuiper, he says that all the time and also of Bavink, but to tax um, a common grace, the idea of pluriformity, sphere sovereignty even, uh, not rejects it, but attacks it. Um, can, can, what, what does it say about what new Calvinism really is? Um, maybe, maybe the idea of, 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 of some sensibilities uh, is, is, is a good way of, uh, of, of getting conception. What, what do you guys think about that? So I think that there are various ways that we can try and answer this. Um, it's not a unique problem to neo-Calvinism. You also have the same kind of problem, I think, with talking about who is reformed. Um, theologically far more broadly. So I once wrote a chapter for um, the Oxford Handbook to of, of modern the of reform theology, I should say. And my chapter was on reform theology across Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries. And you know, when you're trying to write about such, you know, such a huge range of figures, the immediate challenge that stares you in the face is who gets to be called reformed and how do you even begin to describe that? So who is in and who's out? Um, if you're thinking in a strictly historical sense, one obvious way that you could try and deal with this is just to talk about descent and lineage. So, you know, if you're thinking about who's reformed, um, is Schleiermacher reformed? Was Bavink reformed? Can the same label apply to both? Um, not in a confessional sense, in terms of, you know, things that they, like how they articulate the specific content of the Christian faith. Um, and yet neither Bavink and Orton or Schleiermacher is Roman Catholic or, or Lutheran or Anabaptist or something like that. So you can you can kind of affirm in a historical sense, well, they're both in some kind of lineage. But then if you want to talk about um, about them more in relation to one another rather than them as having a common line of ancestry, let's say, going back to the Protestant Reformation, then you start, then I move from thinking about history um, and lines of descent, let's say, a kind of family tree analogy to thinking about another analogy or another illustration, which I take from language. So, you know, in language um, or linguistics, when we think about the question of um, like, what's a language and what's a dialect, for example, there's something that's quite artificial and arbitrary about those terms even. Um, and instead, I guess the way that a lot of linguists think about this is to think about um, what you could call a dialect continuum. 
So if you're thinking about like a, quite a broad family of like Germanic dialects, let's say, and you begin in Switzerland and then you end up in Friesland in the, the northwest of the Netherlands, um, they're you know they're they're interrelated and you you can you can see again common things even though there's there might not be much immediate mutual intelligibility between someone speaking frisian and someone speaking swiss german right but they are they're germanic um forms of language so what you can identify i think in amongst neo-calvinists is maybe something a bit like that is, is kind of a dialect continuum or a continuum of sensibilities where there are like there, there are extremes in any kind of spectrum or continuum like that, like Swiss German and um, like Icelandic, you know, also as a Germanic language, a Northern Germanic language. And yet they're clearly not Asiatic um, forms of language. They are Indo-European and they belong in a particular family group. Um, if you become fluent in one, you can make more sense of others in the same continuum um, uh, more easily. And there's, there's an intuitive um, path into those other places in the continuum that you have if, if you have a good anchor and one point in it. So I think that when you think about the neo-Calvinists or neo-Calvinism in the most broad possible terms, okay, we can talk about historical descent. So is Klaeschilder a neo-Calvinist? Well, you know, he wasn't produced by a Lutheran church or he didn't come from that Anabaptist tradition. He comes from the neo-Calvinist tradition. So he's inexplicable without that historical line of descent. But then if we're thinking about moving away from the the family tree analogy to the language analogy i think if you think about it as a kind of dialect continuum um then you could have um do you at one end you could have schilder at another or, or bavink um you could have richmau you could have tim keller um, and you can hold all of these people together in a dialect continuum where you have like mutual intelligibility at lots of close points on the continuum but if you go to either end of the continuum, either extreme, then you could have something that is, you could have two things that are as different as you know, Icelandic and Swiss German. Yeah, I really like that metaphor. And I think it's, it's helpful to, to understand what we, uh, what we're looking at. And it, it also made me think of how I think it, it this also makes neo-Calvinism uh, a, a healthy and an, an interesting tradition because it is so broad and diverse. Um, I mean, New Calvinism is not maybe maybe a bit like I'm not sure. Maybe maybe correct me if I'm wrong. As for example, the Barthian tradition, where it's really about uh, much about understanding what did Bart say exactly about all this. I mean, it's not it's not really the heart of New Calvinism to figure out what Bavik and Kuiper uh, said or wanted. It's really a tradition that builds on on some sensibilities they started and 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 draws and gets inspired by what they said. Um, but very quickly, we can a few fundamental concepts can be cr criticized, and it's and it's still part of the tradition, and and it's also a living tradition. I mean, we're 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 a hundred years later, and we still have a, um, a a flourishing tradition and a debate where Bavik and Kuiper are being studied. It's important, but it's not it's not like the it's not the heart of what it, what what neo Calvinism is today. Well, that was a fantastic point, Marinus, especially your point about Karl Barthes, that, that so much of the Bardian tradition, and I completely agree with you, seems to be about matters of interpretation about Bard. And I think drawing from Kuiper and Bavink remain important because so much of the misconceptions come from forgetting what Kuiper and Bavink did say. But it is also a kind of liveliness to Neo-Calvinism where you are taking particular concepts that are found in Kuiper and Bavink and you're thinking to yourself, okay, where can I draw 
from these resources and yet bring it to today. So one of the things that I think characterized neo-Calvinism is still this backward and forward looking sort of both directional movement where you're at the same time wanting to stand on the past, but you're bringing it to the future. It was just what distinguishes neo-Calvinism too, I think from sort of recent movements in retrieval and reform scholasticism in particular. I think we love reform scholasticism. I think if you follow Kaiper and Bobbing, they loved reform scholasticism. But I think the difference between sort of the current retrieval projects and Kaiper and Bobbing is that there's also a, a forward-looking direction from the Kaiperian or Bavinkian neo-Calvinistic tradition, where you want to take the older formulations, but you also want to think about where the older formulations won't have any traction today, where the older formulations might be improved by newer insights in science and philosophy. And so there isn't a desire for repristination. So one of the motifs or one of the sensibilities of neo-Calvinism is that sort of backward and forward looking, which invites a kind of criticism against neo-Calvinism from both sides, where sort of conservative folks would say, you are not you know, faithful enough to your tradition. And then the moderns will be like, we are, you sound like a fundamentalist, right? So on both modern orthodox sides, Bob and Kuiper face these sorts of criticisms. And I think neo-Calvinists today face the same kind of criticisms, right? When we're trying to imbibe in this tradition, we invite misunderstanding on both sides. But I think that's the only way we can do theology, personally speaking, right? I think we have to take the past and we have to go to the future. And neo-Calvinism is compromised, I would argue, when it doesn't stand on the past and what doesn't want to keep rethinking things so that we can face the future. Yeah, that's really helpful. I, I think in light of that grade, to, to me, there are, there are basic neo-Calvinist sensibilities that are driven by theological commitments. And while there can be a really wide diversity of how that fleshes out, I mean, I guess, are, are there non-negotiable non theological sen or uh, sensibilities, I should say, cultural sensibilities, movement sensibilities that, that do uh, define those broad parameters. I mean, one of the ones to me that, and that I think you were mentioning, Greg, though, what we've tried to succinctly define as the orthodox yet modern sensibility, right? The sensibility to not repristinate, but to be theologians and to be a church that is for the today. Uh, and then part of that is also accompanied by a, a, a ministerial openness, I think, to um, partnering uh, with like-minded Christians from any tradition in a broad ecclesiological emphasis as well. And both of those, one of those is a openness to the possibilities of new philosophies being helpful for theology. It's more of an academic sensibility. The other is a ministerial sensibility. And both of them are driven by the neo-Calvinist uh, emphasis on the theological reality of Catholicity and of um, and of a developing irenicism that's in light of this emphasis on Catholicity. And of course, you could say that all those different theological sensibilities or theological commitments, I should say, manifest in some basic sensibilities, orthodox yet modern, uh, Catholic irenic spirit and openness um, to new philosophies and openness to ministerial partnership, things like that. Uh, to me, those are some of the base sensibilities, non-negotiable sensibilities that mark out uh, the, the broad diversity of neo-Calvinist movements. Yeah, and I think two particular texts that come into my mind that, that come from Kuiper and Boving that talk about this particular orthodoxy of modern sensibility is, first of all, Kuiper's conservatism and orthodoxy, 
where he argues that to be orthodox does not mean that you're a conservatist in the sense that you want to just tether yourself to old formulations and tether yourself to the exact form and wording of older formulations, that you want to see these, there's a spirit, the living um, um, essence of the forms uh, and actually try to carry it forward. So Kuiper is kind of known as sort of the curmudgeonly, you know, hyper-conservative sort of guy, even a theocrat, but in that particular text, he's actually defending himself against a conservative spirit. Um, and on the other hand, also, I think Herman Boving's forward to the wonderful works of God that was just recently translated for this new edition from Westminster Seminary Press, where he basically talked about how, yes, he wants to continue on the reform tradition, but he can't just keep assigning Wilhelma Brackel's work or Christian's reasonable service or something like that, because he thinks that these sort of older 17th century uh, texts can't actually do the same work that they used to be able to do today in a sort of busy modernizing age and so this is why he wrote the wonderful works of god self-consciously saying to himself hey we need something new here even though we want to be reformed at the same time and i think actually doing that balancing act is an incredibly difficult work to do so if we think about balancing acts as well um something that i hear almost all the time from people who identify themselves as neo-Calvinists is they talk about common grace and antithesis. Um, and I, so we're talking about the, well, we're talking in the language of non-negotiables at this stage. What are the things that you have to subscribe to, to be a neo-Calvinist? And then we've spoken quite a bit about Klaas Hilder, who's critical of, um, of common grace, general revelation, and then that creates a slightly awkward question um, for him, whether he belongs amongst the neo-Calvinists, maybe it makes life a little bit awkward for Marinus as a Schilder expert. But I, I wonder if maybe we should actually shift the discussion subtly but importantly away from non-negotiables to move back to this image that I brought up of, let's say, the dialect continuum, okay? Where um, you could think about it like this, that there are some things that neo-Calvinists well, so many neo-Calvinists will talk about, like common grace and antithesis and how you hold the balance of those things, that they that that creates like a very broad stream of mutual intelligibility across a big chunk of the the, the dialect continuum. Okay, we all speak this language of common grace and antithesis um, and general revelation and so on. Um, but then you could have, let's say, uh, on the edges of the continuum, people who don't, whose, whose language has dropped those terms or those sounds and they don't speak the language of common grace um, anymore, although they, their ancestors did. But there are enough other features of their, um, their way of theologizing that, okay, we're not mutually intelligible on that point um, in, that, in that part of the continuum, but there's enough other commonality still from common descent that the spectrum still makes sense. It's still a worthwhile way to hold these figures together in, in your own imagination with how you think about neo-Calvinists. So um, yeah, so that's a question to the, to the group then. Uh, are common grace and antithesis and how they fit together non-negotiables? Um, is, it, is it awkward for you guys to think about is Klaas Hilder a, a neo-Calvinist? It's not awkward for me at all, but it might be awkward for Marinus. So we'll see what he says there. <laughs> Well, I can definitely live with uh, Schilder not ending up as a neo-Calvinist if he decide he isn't. Uh, the question is, of course, are we up to for that decision? <laughs> that, that remains to be seen. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I think Schilder definitely like moves 
to the edges of the continuum with some of his ideas. Um, and But I guess we should also ask the question, how do you want to use common grace and why do you want to emphasize uh, that doctrine and how is it what what practical consequences and doctrinal consequences does it have um and i think schilder was if if i can can go a little bit deeper into that he he, he was um he, he didn't like the idea because of some of the consequences it had and he 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 felt that the idea of common grace as it was used by by Kuyperians in his time um, had a kind of secularizing um, and leaning too too much towards modernism and not orthodoxy, uh, if you can use that, 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 that maybe core sensibility uh, at, at this point. And so therefore, he, um, he, he, I think he, he just wanted to, to defend the tradition, the confession also, as he would say, reformed confessions, um, uh, against people who, who try to relativize the importance of those core reform doctrines and confessions, uh, for example, for a life outside of the church. Uh, that, that's what he saw happening. He saw people confine, using sphere sovereignty and common grace to confine um, doctrine to the realm of the church and to say, well, for politics and for, for unions and for for science, these 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 things don't matter because that's another another realm, the realm of common grace. So if you look at it from that perspective, I think he's um, it's completely understandable why he becomes critical of common grace and and uh, and and it's all, it's also I think that the the the, the reason Kuiper uh, uh, you wanted common grace and used it, namely for for cultural engagement, for not um, not withdrawing and keeping up that connection between the church and things outside of the church, uh, um, all of life. Um, that's exactly what Kuiper wanted to uphold. And he felt he had to criticize common grace in order to exactly keep that impetus. Yeah, so um, I guess my question maybe had more of an empirical motivation. Uh, just when I, it's it's rare for me to hear someone say I'm a neo-Calvinist and I don't believe in common grace. Usually, the the two go together, which prompts my question then: to you know, to what extent is it necessary to believe in common grace to to be a neo-Calvinist? But let me throw a different cat among the pigeons, okay? And also empirically, okay? So I've met lots of people who. Um, let's say like they they already have like an operating theological system okay that their church tradition has given them so you know american evangelicals who um sense that there's a kind of lack in the in the truth uh, the what their tradition has given them and quite often that's um, a theology of culture uh, so you know they have a theology of lots of other things but they never have really felt equipped to think about the human world around them and how they interact with that and how they make sense of that in a Christian way, in an intentional way. And then they discover, oh, hey, Bavink and Kuiper, and they have this very rich theology of culture. So I'm going to plug that into the rest of the system that's already running. It's a kind of a, it's an add on. Um, if the only aspect of neo-Calvinism that you have is common grace and it's an add on to a different system, are you a neo-Calvinist? Is that enough to make someone a neo-Calvinist? Maybe that's a different way to think about the question than of what is neo-Calvinism or what's the right conception of it. That's a difficult question. I just saw Corey Brock unmuted, so I thought he was going to say something. And I saw you shaking your head, Gray. Like, the listeners can't yeah, see that, this on the right. Zoom call, but you have a, you, you had a passionate reaction there to say it's not enough. So no, that's I right. Can, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, 
I think that's a really, really difficult question, James. And I think with the question of Schilder too, it's also really, really difficult. I think it is really hard to comprehend common grace without a Kuyperian understanding of the antithesis. Or at least I would I would argue maybe it's not even a Kuyperian understanding, but a sort of reformed understanding of the divide between um, those in Adam and those in Christ, right? And the, the reason why those in Adam and those in Christ can continue to cooperate in harmony today is because of common grace. So I'd argue that that common grace devoid of that doesn't have the same sort of explanatory value. Common grace actually comes into a particular reform problem, which is an empirical problem that reformed theology produces. If you're reformed and you happen to believe in the serious effects of sin and original sin and total depravity and things like that, that creates a particular empirical problem. How is it then therefore you can get along with the unbeliever? How is that the unbeliever can actually outshine Christians in terms of their moral good and, and things like that? So common grace answers that particular reform quote unquote problematic. But if you don't have the doctrine of the antithesis, common grace, I'd argue, becomes superfluous because you because if, if people are not uh, so radically deep in sin, then you don't need common grace to account for their moral goodness. You can just simply say, well, it's the freedom of the will or something else. Go ahead, Corey. Well, I mean, prior to common grace and antithesis and dogmatic logic, we have to first talk about creation and recreation. And mm -hmm. those are more fundamental categories than common grace and antithesis in neo-Calvinist logic, right? And so, I mean, I think the answer, James, it, it, I would say is yes. Um, common, common grace is a derivative, uh, is a post-fall reality, right? Whereas one of the first things I think we want to say as neo-Calvinists is that uh, grace restores nature precisely because God's work of redemption is the same, uh, has the same goal as creation did originally, and that is the achievement of the kingdom of God. And so neo-Calvinism to me um, says something first about uh, kingdom theology about the relationship between protology and eschatology um, being being an organic unity prior to you ever get prior to antithesis and common grace and so I mean for that reason I would have to say the answer is, is at least yes to some degree yeah so I think um, what really this 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 brings out Corey is that you can't divorce new Calvinism from its original theological and reform context, I think. I think it is a particular application of reform theology. And without that sort of reform theological framework, um, it sort of loses its moorings, I would argue. And you know, I'd ask, I'd ask the same question, not just about Schilder, but also you know, with someone like Herman Doeweerd, who, in my view, wants to replace classical reformed uh, uh, doctrines with, with newer philosophical terms and ideas in a way that I wonder necessarily cuts off neo-Calvinism from these theological roots. And these are conversations that I hope we can continue to have as we go forward. Yeah, just a quick historical addition to this. Um, it, it's also good to remind that common grace was for Kuiper a, a relatively late development in his theology. I mean, he, he had been um, working as a, what we now would like looking back at neo-Calvinist uh, theologian, politician, um, journalist uh, for a number of decades before even this 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 notion of common grace came to the table. So that that historic development also shows how it's how it really needs to be embedded in a larger larger whole of theology and can't really be be used as like like a, a taken out of of uh, of the of the whole of the of, of the ideas. But Calvin uh, himself yeah. Calvin himself affirmed common grace, isn't that right, Marinus? 
Well, that's he something did. for he did. <laughs> yeah. that's something we we should discuss at some point, maybe. But yeah, you I mean you mean Paul as well, the Apostle Paul? Anyway, okay. <laughs> Calvin definitely did. There isn't even a discussion to be had, guys. This has been a great discussion. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking about this with each of you. Um, so, and we're almost at time for today. So, just to round things off, we have a couple of very exciting episodes coming up with guests. Our next guest um, is George Haddink, Professor of the History of Neo-Calvinism in Campen and at the Free University of Amsterdam. So we're excited about talking to him. We also have an episode coming up with Leah Boyd, who's one of the most exciting emerging young Christian thinkers around today and someone who's who's really into Bavink, um, also has a background in music. So I'm looking forward to talking with her as well about um, how she thinks about Neo-Calvinism in relation to uh, to liturgy and, and music within culture. Um, but yeah, thanks to the listeners for joining us. Um, one final, final thing is that none of you answered my question. Do you, would you call yourselves Kyperians? But I guess we'll leave that as the cliffhanger for today. <laughs> Maybe we can return to it at another time. But thanks, guys, and thanks to the listeners again. <laughs>